Hi, Veronica. Hey, Sarah. How's it going? It's good. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and welcome, everybody, to Thickest Thieves, the podcast where we talk about art heists and we delve into the investigation and the details of the artwork and who did it and why they did it, if we know why. And if we think the art sucks. <laughs> That's been, yeah, that was last week's episode. Was We were not in awe of the artwork that was stolen. Well, that actually would have been like two episodes ago. That's right. <laughs> not last week, but the one we're referring to is the, um, the portrait of Suzanne Block. Yeah. If you haven't listened to that episode, go check it out. It's called Ugly Art Gets Stolen Too. <laughs> so, why don't we start off with some art news okay have you read anything interesting recently okay yeah one headline caught my attention recently it was a um i mean like this morning (laughs) (laughs) really recently hey can we do a cheers first let's do oh yeah cheers for the people who can't see this we're just cheersing yeah to start this off actually this is the first time you're drinking a beer with me (laughs) yeah it's true so the headline that caught my attention was the headline itself was interesting. It's not something like blah, 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 stole something or da, 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 defaced a statue. It was actually solving crime with art. Oh. Yeah. What the hell does that mean? So it's, um, I'm going to botch it a bit, but um, basically there's a Native American artist named Harvey Pratt who became the pioneer of a technique known as soft tissue postmortem drawing. And he, it was an art form that he, it was art for him, but it is the technique that for the past 50 years has been aiding forensic investigations. Hmm. Yeah. What are they doing with the They reconstruct bodies with... Are you trying to read the the expression on my face yeah. right now? <laughs> I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> um... <laughs> It's a way. It's a way of reconstructing disfigured bodies, oh. and then it helps with forensic investigation somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I think that sounds great. The end. Wow. I want to learn more about this. Me too, and I don't know much, and so that's why I come in with this very limited knowledge. Because if you ask okay. me like more questions about it, I would not know. <laughs> okay, but well, the seed has been planted. We'll look into it in the future. Yes, <laughs> we'll find out more about what in the world that means. Right. Uh, later on something that caught my eye actually you know what i'm gonna give a shout out to my friend abel munoz who has been love abel love abel he's absolutely wonderful he has been sending me since the beginning of this podcast he has been diligently sending me every article he finds that has anything to do with art heists and it's so much appreciated and because I don't know, I think he's just like constantly on like got his finger on the pulse of like all of the art publications and just read stuff re- like the day it comes out. And so he'll text me and send me art- links to articles and it's lovely. So, oh, my God. Thanks, Abel. So this this one is something that Abel sent me recently. And I'll just read the headline and then we can kind of go into what it's about. So the headline is and this is in uh, this is Artnet News. A Swiss collector wanted to buy a Ryan McGinley artwork from Team Gallery, then a cyber thief slithered into the deal. So, this is about um, a cyber fraud that shocked the art world in 2017, and its latest victims are Team Gallery and a young collector. So basically what happened, and we haven't really touched on any form of cyber fraud 
We haven't really no. got. We've kind of been stuck in like ancient old history. school fraud. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just or like old, this. Yeah, the stealing of an actual object. This is the the interception of communications between a collector and gallery and then basically what happened is someone hacked into team gallery's email and started having conversations with a potential buyer and basically got the buyer to wire funds to this person thinking that you know the buyer's thinking that they're going to get this really great ryan mcginley photograph and instead the thief just takes some money and vanishes. Oh, man. And the gallery has no idea that this is happening. The collector thinks that they're, you know, communicating with the gallery owner, which is terrifying. So yeah. this photograph was $18,900. So this young collector paid that money and it's just gone. Wow. Okay. That's so interesting to me because I just, I'm surprised in a way that's that someone making such a large purchase would just do it all through email uh yeah <laughs> so i almost come on come on people think like he was an easy mark yeah yeah i mean yeah you shouldn't do that hey everybody don't just send eighteen thousand dollars across the sea via wire transfer to somebody just don't do it unless you really really are 100 percent yeah, everybody, um, sure. don't do that. Hey, world. <laughs> All um, of you doing that, just stop. Yeah, so not a smart move. Um, I mean, I get the idea that you really want that McGinley piece, because I'm sure there's a photo a photo of the photo in this Artnet article. Yeah, so what? where is the photo now? I mean, it's still at the gallery. Right. So I don't know if, they're, if she's going to repurchase it, or if they, I mean... Is it the gallery's? Here's here's a philosophical question: Is it the gallery's responsibility to give her that photograph? I don't think so. Mm, you know, it's so weird because if this was a painting, it'd be kind of a different story. Why? Because photograph certificate. There's like there are editions of them. You know. Um, yeah, but that doesn't devalue one of them. It does not. However, this I mean, is. I like, think that's why a photograph is worth eighteen thousand dollars and not you know. 75000 or $100,000. Yeah. I think they're already lower in monetary value. But yeah, it's it's just a weird thing to think. I've been thinking once, ever since I read the article, it's there are a lot of questions that have just been like turning around in my mind. In terms I know. Of what, the, what the ethical thing to do in that situation is. Right. Because it, it, it rude to just kind of look at the collector and be like, ah, sucks for you. Like you tried to yeah. buy, you tried to make a major purchase from our gallery, you got screwed over. Whoops. Like, that's not cool. Whoops. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I, that's where my conversation with the gallery would end when they said whops. <laughs> but, um, well, the thing is, yeah. So, did she get her money back? No. It's just, no, the money's gone. Unless she disappeared. Did, unless she did some kind of lawsuit. Larson said she would not hold the gallery responsible for the hack if her bank account were able to get her money back. <clears throat> so she's fighting with the gallery at this point. It's just like, why didn't you pick up a phone just to make sure you were actually having real I know. communication See, with this, this person? See, this is a problem. This is a problem with the internet. The internet. <laughs> our screen <laughs> obsession. Our, yeah. Like, I mean, have not, a conversation. Yeah. With a real You're going to buy an artwork. Just chat. Chat with your Call the gallery person owner. that's selling it to you. Yeah. Maybe. This is just a a lesson to everybody. Just have a conversation with a real human. Because that's like, that kind of fraud is like everyday fraud, but it just doesn't really happen often in in the art market. Right. 
Though it's mounting. I mean, it's it's happening sort of more and more. It's called the middleman scam. Oh, I so. like it. I, I remember st- I started getting emails about a year ago from someone who's pretending to be a collector interested in buying my visual artwork, which I don't make any of. <laughs> so they were like, I really love that one painting. And it's like, hello, my name. It starts out, hello, my name's Henry from Texas. My wife and I love your work. We really want to buy this one landscape that we can't stop thinking about. I mean, it's this like full on email. And I'm like, Ooh. what's the end goal with that? to have um, set up give them my info i guess bank account and routing number info and then maybe they're going to use that for something i don't know they're like we want to just wire transfer you oh and buy it yeah yeah they're probably going to ask I didn't you respond, for your bank info obviously sure you should have you should have just like teased it out a little i know just it should have been where like it what goes. did you love about that painting <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and then tell them a tragic story about it yeah yeah that could have been a really great it could be it could have been some sort of writing project. It could later have on. been. Well, well, hopefully someone else will try to scam me and I can do it. Because <laughs> you blew the first opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> How about we get into... Yeah, I don't even know what we're talking about today. Oh, boy. Uh, have I got a surprise for you? Okay. Well, today we are talking about the theft of a Marc Chagall painting. Mm. And it is <clears throat> his painting titled Othello and Desdemona from the Shakespeare play. Um, and this this is a theft. It's not from a museum. This is just from, this is a household theft situation. Happened in 1988 in New York City. So we're dealing, what we're dealing with here is an elderly couple who live in like a really snazzy apartment mm. on the Upper East Side. And they've lived there forever. They take a little vacay to Aspen, Colorado. And when I say... Did I, did I mention they were elderly? Did I say that? I, I want think, to kind of point out that they... I think you did, but let's just really rub that I in. Because really that seems like it's important. to emphasize. Well, it kind of... It just... I don't know. I think it's a detail that's important. They were like in their 80s. So is this something to do with like their eyesight not being so great? Or no, they, they weren't even there. They couldn't run, catch the guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think what's important about it is the fact that they were in their 80s and they were still taking trips to Aspen. I think that's pretty cool. You know, they're like living in New York, taking little romantic trips to Aspen for two months. This was a two-month trip to Aspen, and then they went back to New York. If there's one thing this podcast, doing this podcast with you, is teaching me, is how to be in my, like, 70s and 80s. (laughs) Because we've had a few examples of people Mm -hmm. who are living, like, such adventurous, exciting lives. Totally. In their, you know, 70s and 80s. So Mm -hmm. I'm excited about those decades, even though I'm probably going to be homeless. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we'll both be homeless it's well fine. yeah there will be so many homeless people at that point no one's gonna be able to survive right in like 20 years you're <laughs> so right we'll all be homeless we'll figure we'll, we'll figure it out be together this, like, as geriatric a return to punk <laughs> yes <laughs> oh my god yeah so they were 85 and 88 and their names were they are now deceased sadly um ernest and rose heller and they went by the, their nicknames are Pick and Red. His nickname is Pick and her nickname is Red, which, again, how this is how you live when you're in your mid-80s. You have your little punk rock names and yeah. <laughs> you travel around. <laughs> so they went on a trip and then they came back and they discovered that a lot of their artwork was gone. So they had 
a pretty decent sized collection. They had, I think it was like 12 or 21 paintings and 12 sculptures in their art collection. But we're talking really important pieces. Can I just point out those numbers? Maybe yes. the significance. 21 is the opposite of 12. Wait, it's not, <laughs> you know what I mean? Inverse? <laughs> okay, shut up. I'm telling myself to shut up right now. <laughs> Sorry, continue. So they had 21 paintings and 12 sculptures in their collection. And these are like by Renoir, Picasso. Edward Hopper, like all, I mean, major artists. These aren't like little small things that they got at antique stores. And there's one report said that their, what the thieves actually stole was around $600,000 worth of artwork, which would be like if you ingest, uh, adjust for inflation, like $1.3 million today. Yeah. So the thieves ended up stealing 13 or 14. There are a couple different numbers, but most things say 13 paintings. So 13 of the 21 paintings the thieves stole. We don't know exactly what happened, but there's a general consensus on what happened. So they had, what's kind of amazing is they had an alarm system. They had a pretty sophisticated alarm system in their house. Hmm. But the thieves, thieves totally got past it. So this was a... So you know, it's plural. Thieves, plural. Yeah. Yeah. They say it was three, I think, two or three. So this is a 16th floor apartment in like one of Manhattan's exclusive neighborhoods and there so the lawyer who was working on this case said that the apartment was like something of a salon where like artists and musicians used to hang out and all all the stuff is it just seems like a pretty cool pretty cool building that they were in so they had alarm system installed and there was no sign of a break-in so no broken door no nothing they just walk into their house everything is normal when they're coming back they flick on the lights and then they just notice that their shit is gone mm-hmm. so that's the first clue because there's no first clue of a heist first clue your shit is gone your shit is gone that, that wasn't the clue that i was referring to it was more <laughs> of the fact that, the, that nothing was broken into <laughs> so that means that it was someone who had a key yep so someone who had access to their apartment and it ended up so they kind of launch an investigation it gets nowhere for 30 years there's a very long gap of just like no one knows what happened to it but things start to unravel in 2017. Was the work insured? Mm, I don't think so. Okay, so there's a New York Times story that reports on this. It's pretty good. Um, even though they say a team of sophisticated art thieves, which I don't think it was necessarily a team of sophisticated art thieves. Yeah. Uh, it never is. <laughs> it's usually like, except for, you know, we've, we've covered a couple of heists that were sophisticated, but a lot right. of these are just kind of bumbling people it's just assumptions are always made right and i guess journalists can't write an article that's like we have no idea who took these things so (laughs) but these things are gone they have to just sort of attribute these personalities to these unknowns right yeah which are usually wrong right so these these thieves had ties to a bulgarian organized crime ring supposedly that's been figured out so they go into the apartment and they it's reported that they basically take their time because one of the thieves is the superintendent of the building oh wow majorly an inside job then yes super inside job and the reason why they know it was him he actually got charged later in his life with stealing from his own building okay so they kind of walk it back later on when they when they start to find out things about this crime and they realize like oh it's this guy who's done it before Mm -hmm. um so he had keys to the building, keys to the apartments, and he knew that when they traveled, that they were going to be gone for a long time. 
So the police say that, you know, they just they took their time inside the apartment. They wore gloves, so there was no fingerprints or anything like that. And then he so he knew how to work the alarm system. He either knew how to work the alarm system or the alarm system didn't work very well. Ooh, okay. I mean, who knows? I'm thinking the former if it was probably like, the former. There are rich people with fancy art collection. They should have a decent alarm system. Right. Somehow the thieves bypassed it. So this guy is like a total like liar. Yes. He's yes. really good at Very lying. skeezy. Because he lives, he like works, he says hi to those people every day. He saw they were devastated and probably offered a shoulder to cry on. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Those types. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he was just, you know, we're, he was probably just thinking about this and planning this for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, like I imagine he, I don't know what a superintendent does. Lots. Do they do lots? Do they like fix stuff? Do they do? Yeah. See, I bet he was like in their apartment fixing their like bathroom sink or whatever and just noticing all of their paintings. Well, he also saw them come into the building. Yeah. They walked in. Presumably. And but they wouldn't admit. Yeah. But they might have been. I would imagine if you're transporting like a painting into a building, it's not just like out in the air. Right. But I bet like one of them pick or red was like. Oh my! This is my favorite Picasso painting. Like just like <laughs> waiting for it to come in and get like just giddy, right? So he steals the painting with a couple of other people. We don't really know who those other people are. We just know this main person. We know the superintendent part of that story. So he goes. He takes the thirteen paintings, mm-hmm. probably a few one day, a few the next day. Just slowly picks whatever whatever things he wants. And these paintings. So there's the one by Chagall. And the reason why we're talking about that one specifically is because that's the one that got returned. And that's the painting that kind of kicked off the whole reopening of the investigation and how they actually caught the people who did it. So that is the only painting of all 13 that have that has been returned. And that was returned in 2017? That was returned in 2017. They were dead. But it got returned to their estate. And then their estate... Who returned it? <clears throat> the police, I guess. Okay. Well, we're going to talk about the story of like how yeah. it got found. Among the paintings that they took, it was a Chagall painting, a Renoir, Picasso, Leger, Hopper. They took them all, along with some jewelry and some antiquities from Peru and Costa Rica. And apparently, they even took some damn rugs. What? I don't even know. I mean, I'm imagining like big area rugs where there's like furniture and I'm imagining. So heavy. Yeah. And, and when I imagine like an 88 year old's New York apartment that they've been living in forever, I imagine just lots of furniture that hasn't been moved for a long time and then trying to roll up the rug. I don't know. That... To me, it just seems like a very big endeavor. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so they take all the stuff. Really, the interesting th- part about this is what happens next. Mm-hmm. So what happens 30 years after mm. this heist? Before we talk about that, hmm. what do you think about Chagall? <laughs> <laughs> so, full disclosure, I was a big fan of Chagall's when I was 16 years old. Mm. And I was even kind of ashamed of it then, but I did have a Chagall poster on my bedroom wall. Let's let's unpack that shame. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I just think Chagall was one of the easiest artists to like from... Like a group of artists that, you know, like Leger and who are some of the other peers, like Mogi Deliani. <laughs> I can never say his name. <laughs> Mo Digliani. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Chagall was French Russian. So that we're, this is he not was an Russian American. boy. I mean, Russian boy. <laughs> I mean, he was and born. Then he moved to France later. He was born in Russia, moved to France, and he became big, like in, I don't know, 1911, I think, is when he his career took off because he did a very romantic piece that was, I think. I believe an ode to his 
fiance or wife at the time. So, I mean, the work is so romantic. It's so like mm-hmm. people are like flying away and the stars are in the sky. It's just so easy to like. It is saccharine mm-hmm. art amongst in a time when a lot of art was getting very weird, very abstract. You know, we have people like Max Ernst. We have people doing some really weird stuff. And then we have Chagall, who's doing some very likable art. And I fell for it when I was a teen and then turned my back on it so hard when I was like 19. Right. Like, I I denied ever liking Chagall. (laughs) So now I'm even kind of ashamed of that. Well, now we all know. Now the whole world knows. All the world that listens to this knows. So... Well, this one is not necessarily a romantic. I mean, I guess it's somewhat romantic. So the 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 painting. So this was painted in 1911. Oh, what is it called? Othello and Desdemona. Oh, right, 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 yeah. right. So it's a it's a very classic scene, a classic depiction of Othello standing by Desdemona's bed. She's in the bed. He's killed her. I'm assuming. I'm assuming it's post. So very brief synopsis of Othello for those of you who forgot. <laughs> Othello is basically the story of. Iago tells Othello that his the love of his life, Desdemona, is cheating on him. Othello mm-hmm. goes and kills Desdemona because he's just so jealous and angry. And then he finds out that it was all a ruse and that Desdemona wasn't cheating on him. And then he gets so sad that he killed her that then he kills himself. Typical Shakespeare tragedy situation. Right. So this, this image is of Othello. So that. Uh, yeah. She's I mean, showing me a picture on the phone. Yeah. So... I mean, you can tell it's Chagall, but it's definitely some it's different Chagall. It's different than his most popular yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's a lot darker. When people are trying to appraise it, there's a reason why. So th- there's a lot of debate on what this painting is worth because people say it's unattractive or it's, that it's just not in typical Chagall fashion. So it's not the romantic pe- people flying around in the sky and the stars and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a little bit of, de- of debate about what it might be worth. So there's estimations between $500,000 to $900,000. So, I mean, just a huge kind of gap. Mm-hmm. But Chagall's work sells for millions, typically, at auction. The record for one of his paintings is $28.4 million, And that's one of his, like, it's a man and woman hugging. Oh, is it like they're at the window? I think so. It's from 1928. Um, but it's the Bella Rosenfeld, who is, was his wife, who's the muse of all of his yeah. sweet saccharine paintings. Um, is it this one? Is that the Les Amoureux? Mm-hmm. Yep. It's that one. Yeah. That's so nice. That's the one, yeah, that's the one that, that's his highest grossing painting. And so this Othello and Desdemona painting is nothing like that. Yeah, that's the thing with Chagall. His paintings are typically of things that you want to be mm-hmm. you want to be in love you want to be in nature you want to be in flying around in the sky whereas you know i as i learned more and more about art i was like actually have way more respect for artists who are if they're going to have realistic depictions they're going to be of like the brutal world that we live in they're going to be turning a mirror on that not on like the fantasy world that we don't live in so yeah that is why i fell for Chagall and turned my back on Chagall but I see he tried to go into some darkness here with yeah, this one that was he attempted. it's um, a weird it's a weird painting this one that Desdemona one is this like right before fellow's about to kill her I don't know if he do you see blood I mean yeah it's either before or after it's arguably blood it just seems like why would he be sneaking around the curtain after he killed her you know it's like he's about in this painting, it looks like he's about to kill her. Mm. Like she's asleep. Attention. Right. Unless he's like standing back and like looking at her covered in blood and being like, I just killed her. 
I think it makes more sense to paint the moment before. Mm-hmm. Don't you? Mm-hmm. I mean, why paint the aftermath? Is it like, like, yeah. It just seems more, in, more within the context of this. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. okay. Cool. So we got that. We're not going to go into who whether owns or that not painting Othello. now. I don't know where it ended up. Okay. But I think, but from my understanding, it got sold at auction, and the proceeds went to the McDowell Colony. So they their their whole estate was donated to um, some universities and the McDowell Colony, Ooh. which is like a residency. So oh, I know. Yeah, everything. I want to go there one day. Everything went to fund that. So when they got this painting back, the Hellers were already deceased. So they just put this back into their estate, and it mm. went through the thing. So I don't actually know where it is now. I'm sure the internet has that information. So yeah, so they they were very philanthropic and highly active in the New York art scene more in the kind of second half of the 20th century you know when they were in when they were in their heyday mm-hmm. um they were really when they were ballers when they were balling so they died so in 1998 Ernest died he was 95 and Rose died in 2003 at the age of 105 whoa which is incredible they they were doing something right. They were living life correctly. Yeah, I love that. I want another secret to life, so Me that too. when I'm in my 80s and homeless, but really having a badass existence, <laughs> going to Aspen, I'll remember. So one of the cool things about this painting in particular is its provenance. So the guy's father, Ernest's father, actually bought the painting directly from Chagall, mm. and so the story is and. Ernest did an oral history type thing in 1990 at the Lincoln Center, and he told the story of this painting. Did he do a StoryCorps? I don't know. Was StoryCorps around in 1990? I don't think so. Yeah. I think it might have just been some sort of oral history thing, but Samuel Heller is Ernest's dad, and in 1913, he bought it from, he bought this painting from Chagall for $50, which is amazing so he bought it i want to call him grandfather but he's not, i don't know i mean it's just Ernest's dad um was a student at the ecole julienne in paris mm-hmm. and he was friends with leger mm. and was like hanging around with chagall and was just all in this mix of cool weirdo art people and yeah got the painting for 50 bucks so that's pretty cool yeah. that's a very cool sort of story it's quite um too. quite a good price great price Okay, so we've got some background on what this artwork is. We know a little bit about the Hellers. Yeah. So let's talk about what happened in 2017. Yeah. So the FBI was on this case pretty immediately, and they had it for about 30 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And they didn't really have any leads. And honestly, it probably just wasn't on their priority list. Mm -hmm. So in 2017... An aging criminal, and this was a terminally ill man Man at 72. We don't know their names. They haven't been named. There's The statute of limitations basically resulted in them and no one getting charged just because it was so old and so they couldn't get charged with anything and I actually found the indictment or the like official complaint and it just lists them as person one and person two. So there are two people involved. Person one is the thief who actually went into the building and stole the artwork and then this person two is the person who ended up with the artwork but knew it was stolen and kept it for a really long time. Okay. So I don't know what to call them. I mean, I'm just going to call them person one and person two because that's what they're always referred to as. Yeah. Which is annoying, but that's what's going to happen. <laughs> so we're talking about person two here. He's terminally ill. He's 72 year- years old. And he just turns himself in to the FBI. He says, you know what? I'm dying. What? Yeah. And so they interviewed so Mark Hess was the FBI 
art crime team guy that is interviewed in all the media about this and who was handling the case. And he said that this person called and said that he was motivated by his imminent demise. That was the reason why he wanted to come clean. He wanted to, he, he was saying, like, he told the FBI agent, like, I'm about to meet my maker. It sounds very dramatic. I'm going to meet my maker and, like, I need to clear this from my, like, conscience. What does that? the FBI say? They're like, great. Uh, cool. Thank you. Yeah. Give it, yeah. Wonderful. All right. Go kick the bucket now. So, so the man explains that he's had this painting in his attic for decades. Ha- he's the greatest thing is how this painting was stored. So he had it in a custom box. So it's in his attic in a custom box that he had crafted out of like a door jam and plywood. So this like kind of like ramshackle shackle box. And on the top of the box, he scrawled miscellaneous high school artwork. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love because... That is so great. So because there's such a good chance that if you were to see this painting, if you were to open that box and see this Chagall painting, you might believe that yeah, it was just... It could be like <laughs> miscellaneous high school artwork. Right. It's very moody. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm not trying to really diss on Chagall by saying, like, mm-hmm. it could be compared to, like, a student work. But I don't know. I thought it was clever. <laughs> I thought it was really funny. So that's how he was storing it in his attic. That is so funny. He tells the FBI that he's had it. And part of why this came about was the man was trying to sell it. So all this stuff kept going wrong in attempts to sell this painting. So from the moment that it was stolen, they tried to sell it. didn't work. And then he tried to sell it again in 2011, didn't work. And then again in 2017, where was he trying didn't to work sell it? At a gallery. Okay. Like in the 2011 and 2017, he was trying to sell it to the same gallery. And finally, which was Gallery LaRousse in Washington. And is it still around? Or in DC. I don't know. Hmm. I'm guessing. It has a website. I looked at the website. The, oh. gallery's own, the gallery owner's name is Meech LaRousse, which is a pretty cool name. Lots of cool <laughs> names in this episode. Some things started happening. He wasn't able... It, I think it was just more of like, he wasn't able to sell it. The gallery owners were starting to be like, look, dude, you've got this painting. You have no paperwork for it. You've got nothing for it. Like, something is up. Mm-hmm. This this is... It's either stolen and maybe you stole it. But it started to be, become problematic. And I think the guy at the end was just like, you know what? I just need to give... I'm going to die soon. I'm not going to get any money from this. So I'm just going to turn it in. If you knew that you were about to die and that prison... I mean, he probably just wasn't even afraid of the idea of going to prison and maybe he actually knew about the statute of limitations that Mm -hmm. it wasn't going to be much of an issue for him so the way that he got it so when the thief stole it from their house so this is person was a super we're just going to refer to him as the superintendent when he stole it he wanted to get this other guy to sell it for him Mm -hmm. and the guy found a buyer and was like, hey, I, I, I've got this arranged. Like, this is going to work out. And then the superintendent tried to cut the other guy out of the deal and just go straight to the buyer. Oh. And so when he found that out, he was just like, you know what? I'm just going to take this painting. I'm cutting you out of this and I'm going to steal. So he kind of stole it from the actual thief. Okay, so superintendent gives the painting to the middleman. Mm-hmm. Who knows the and buyer? And like, hey, find a buyer for this. But then... Like, how is he going to get the painting back from him to sell it to the buyer? The middleman. If he was going to cut out the middleman. I guess he was just hoping that he could arrange his deal without giving the middleman his cut oh. of things. And so the middleman caught on and was like, Mm-mm, nope. I and wonder just, how he caught on. I don't know. So person two steals it from person one, basically. Person one goes to jail for stealing 
other work for from an apartment somewhere else. Right. So he's out of the picture. Yeah. And the second man has this painting. And then in 2001, he tries to sell it to the gallery owner. And the owner's just like, no, we can't, you know, we need paperwork. We need, uh, we need proof of ownership. We need provenance. We need all this stuff before we're ever going to even think about selling this for, for me, for you or, you know, buying it from you. Mm-hmm. Um, so they want, they're like asking for a c- certificate from the Chagall committee, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And our dude is just like, no, like, I, I don't even have any of that stuff. Yeah. And which also, this is a really great kind of example of how gallery owners are kind of on the front line of keeping thieves from making money off of this stuff yeah because it's the gallery owners who when they do that when they like do their due diligence and ask for all the paperwork and all of that like they really intercept i don't know they kind of block a lot of things from happening which is pretty cool exactly there's a whole there's a whole i mean it's like buying a car right yeah and so the gallery owner actually recognized the painting. So this is a gallery that's been around for a long time. So when it was brought to him in 2011, he recognized the painting from 1989 when the first guy had brought it to him trying to sell it. And he was like, dude, this has already come to me. And that person did not have any of the paperwork. Now you're bringing it to me and you don't have any of the paperwork. What is up? So the first time in 2001, the gallery owner just denies it. And it doesn't really go anywhere. And then in 2017, when person number two brings it back and is trying to sell it yet again, the gallery owner basically says, like, you need to contact the FBI or law enforcement. Like, you know, this is this is a pretty big deal. And I don't know if the gallery owner contacted the FBI or that's just when the man turned himself in. Right. Maybe he was paranoid that the gallery owner was going to go to the FBI before him or something. I don't know what, but this situation resulted in the man turning himself into the FBI. Hmm. Which is pretty, that's pretty intense. Yeah. But it, I mean, the FBI was really happy about it because right. that means that, you know, one of their big cases and they have so many open cases. So if you go to the FBI art crime website, which mm-hmm. there is one, they have a list of like all the paintings that are stolen that they haven't found yet. And there's just tons. Yeah. It's like, what, 50,000 ish. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's so there's just like a ton of paintings. So this one got marked off the list, which is really great. And it went to go help. An artist colony. Yeah. In New Hampshire. New Hampshire. So funded, you know, five artist residencies. Right. Or more. I don't know how much it really costs for people to go there. I mean, you don't pay to go there. They give you, it's like an award, right? Yeah. It's like a stipend. I mean, our dear friend Vesna just did it last (gasps) year. Shout out to Vesna Pavlovich. She is our our McDowell hookup. Nice. I know some other people, but (laughs) she's the coolest. Yeah. So I think there are a lot of aspects to this heist that are just interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Mostly the fact that a superintendent at your apartment building that you probably lived in for ever yeah. is low enough to take all of your stuff. I know. I and also just why didn't they shake him down a bit more? I know. It's kind of I like... I mean, it was such a clean crime. It was done in such a clean way. Like, why... I don't know. Keep interrogating him. Right. I think that might be one of the first, if not family members. Right. I mm-hmm. mean, that might be the first one you go to is like do that. And I don't know if they had kids or anything like that, but I would probably first go to family members and people who knew them, people who would have had a key or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Then you're like, yeah, apartment people. Yeah. It really seems like. Well, these days it'd be so much harder because everyone has like their homes on surveillance in such a severe way. It's 
in a way that's kind of creepy that, you know, something, I mean, people have like, what's that thing? Ring. Yes. And they have tons of video footage happening inside their homes that people don't know about, like their guests who Mm -hmm. come hang out there. (laughs) It's like when I go to an Airbnb, I'm like, where is the camera? Totally. Well, I get really freaked out about that. So, you know, as an investigator, I have to go to people's houses all the time Mm -hmm. and knock on the door. And I know that there's video footage of me probably knocking on so many people's doors. Yeah, you're a part of that surveillance history. And I imagine they might be really freaked out by me. You know, if they see, they're like, who is this? I'm so scared of this girl in a... Kumo (laughs) t-shirt. So there's, but there's also a feature, this is the really problematic part of Ring. So Ring has a like neighborhood feature or community feature like in the app where people will post like clips of the videos that they catch, you know, from their um, surveillance footage Mm -hmm. and they'll post stuff and they'll be like, who is this suspicious person lurking around my yard? And half the time it's like, like water meter reader person. Right. You know, it's like nobody doing it, like someone doing their job. But if the person, you know, looks at all quote unquote suspicious, then it, creates this really upsetting, disturbing kind of situation. I'm very anti-ring. Me too. And anti, like, the culture that it's created. I understand why people have it, but it's just turned into this whole monster. And I think it really discourages people from, like, knocking on someone's door, even if just a friendly way or whatever. It just, it seems so, like, get off my lawn, stay away from me, keep your distance. And I don't think that really fosters a very neighborly Mm -mm. feeling in a community. Right. You know, it it inspires more of, like, a on-guard, everyone-is-our-enemy type Mm. of thing. Yeah. And I think that's really not good. Right. Yeah, and, and there are like there are times where like someone will be like, oh, someone broke into a car or tried to you know tried to unlock a car, and here's this grainy footage of that person, and then people comment on this footage saying like, oh, that looks like so and so, that looks like so and so, like I think I saw this person, and it's just a whole bunch of ru- it's just this massive like windstorm of rumors, and mm-hmm. I don't know, I just it gets all nasty. It's scary. Mm-hmm. I think I agree. Mm-hmm. What would Chagall have thought of Ring, you know? <laughs> How would that shape his paintings? Would they be so romantic? Maybe. If Ring was around during his day. <laughs> what I know about Chagall is that he start, He was born in a tiny town. And he like knew from an early age that he was like, it's got to get better than this. I can't, I can't live in this depressing-ass little town in mm-hmm. Russia. And so... I think a lot of his artwork is shaped by like ennui and this sort of like desire for something better. And then he, you know, found that life. Essentially, he found like the woman of his dreams became his muse and he lived in Paris and he lived in New York City. And, you know, he had a pretty, from what I understand, sweet life. Yeah. And he lived until he died at the age of 98. Yeah. That's another thing that's going on in this episode. It's like, I know. What's that called again? <laughs> longevity. <laughs> longevity. Human longevity. Longevity of artworks, longevity of humans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just think it's impressive. I think it's really impressive to make it past 60. You know, like, let's say 70. I mean, just with the stresses of life, even. Right. <laughs> and it's just living until you're 105, like Rose Heller did, is just a big achievement. Mm-hmm. It is very often, though, that, like, super wealthy people make it to 105, you know? 
Yeah. Not that I want to make this about that. I'm not. Well, I'm just going to shut down right now. <laughs> going to shut down. <laughs> well, I mean, but they were. I mean, they were. This was a wealthy couple. Mm-hmm. And I, I read one thing that said that Chagall was actually like used to hang out in their apartment. I believe it. With Aaron Copland, the musician. Oh, yeah. Who's awesome. Hmm. So that's the story of Othello and Desdemona. And Pick and Red and... And Pick and Red and, and they're Meech. like person one and person two. <laughs> punk rock geriatrics. That's right. Yeah. Let's do hashtag punk rock geriatrics on this one because... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I just... Hopefully that painting... It was probably bought by a private collector. I doubt it's in the museum because... I say this podcast just raised that value of that painting by at least $30,000. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Yeah. We can inform Sotheby's, which is like, hey, there's a really amazing podcast we episode think about this. that <laughs> you're not selling that for the right amount of money. Yes. Sotheby's. Well, if you have this painting and you're listening to the show, we would love to hear from you. In fact, any of you... Yeah. And also, I, this is the first time I'm saying this. Like, please subscribe to Thickest Thieves. Oh yeah, on Spotify. Right. There's that whole business of like, we need subscribers. We need people to interact with us. Need oh, is a yeah. strong word, but it's uh, we're asking you to do that right now. I'm asking you. Maybe Sarah's not. <laughs> She's kind of too cool. No, Sarah just stays out of this game. Sarah's giving this look like, <laughs> shut up, mom. <laughs> no. Yeah, I su- I support that. That's great. Let's do that. And also, <laughs> Get um, I just want to promote some other podcasts that I've been listening to. Oh, it's, yeah. What you've been listening to? You know, it's weird because I, before being on this network, we own this town, I really, I didn't listen to that many podcasts on this network. I wasn't living in Nashville. I was living in, you know, other mm-hmm. places. And I, when I moved back here, I was still listening to my same old podcasts that were in my rotation. And I still listen to some of those. But now I listen to so many We Own This Town podcast because they're actually so entertaining and i learn yeah. a lot from them like i actually listen to michael's almost every episode michael's is so good so michael's podcast on we own this town is called we own this town correct yes. yeah and it's about music so local he, music it's, and only it's all about it's like really good middle tennessee all in you know different time periods but um i pretty much take every almost all his recommendations and add it to playlists now i do too so he's been his podcast is influencing my what i already thought was pretty good musical taste it's like he's bumped it up like five notches Mm -hmm. yeah i mean if you're feeling uninspired or disillusioned by the local music scene listen to that podcast and that will be wiped away Mm -hmm. there's so much good stuff like in this town and that we own we own (laughs) that we own it (laughs) yeah yeah it makes me me proud to be from here right and this, so this is going to be a little bit after the fact, but I want to mention that Vero is on an episode of Nashville Demystified, which is also on this network, and it's hosted by Alex Steed, who is delightful. Such a delightful human. Mm-hmm. I, and I've only hung out with him once, but it was enough to be like, I hope I hang out with him 20 more times at least. <laughs> it's weird, but you know. Yeah, at least 20. Um, <laughs> yeah, so go listen to that episode. You can find it in the... There's a pencil drawing of me. That's- yeah. Yeah. Um, so go listen to that. Scary, but <laughs> artistically well done. <laughs> so I highly recommend it. Veronica sounds, um, her insights are quite good, good about point. Nashville. Quite. <laughs> if a little dark. Well, <laughs> you know. It's good. 
well all right so thanks for listening everybody um as we just said like this is brought to you by way on this town we don't need to say any more about that <laughs> our theme song is by patrick dampier um and the um artwork is by saskia Kolges. Today's episode-specific artwork is by Adam Nicholson, a Nashville-based artist. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. It just... Oh, oh no. no. Pablo. Shoot. Sorry. Okay, so sorry. To... <laughs> Obviously, this will be edited out. <laughs>